This message by Terry Virgo was first recorded at the New Frontiers Together on a Mission Conference 2006 in Brighton. Have your Bible? Would you like to turn to Hebrews, please? Hebrews and chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read just a few verses with you. Very familiar verses, I'm sure. Hebrews 11:23-26. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather. To endure ill treatment with the people of God, than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Father, we thank you so much for the joy of being together here today. We bless you for bringing us from many nations. We thank you, Lord, for the two. Events that have been taking place today. We bless you for the mobilised day. We thank you for the day we've had to hear together on a mission. We thank you for this opportunity tonight to be together, celebrating you, hearing your word together. Heavenly Father, we pray for the help and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, God, that you want to do surgery upon us. You want to line us up with your holy purposes. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for sending your Spirit to remain amongst us. Now, come, mighty Holy Spirit, and effect change in many lives here tonight. Open our eyes to see, touch our hearts, our wills, stir us to line up with your great plans. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Hebrews 11 would be known as the great faith chapter. Perhaps more than any other chapter in the Scripture, we think of it as the place where men and women are paraded before us as those who did great exploits of faith. And when we think of faith today, probably we get little phrases that go with the thought of faith, such as receiving by faith. We would tend to think of faith as something related to getting answers, obtaining things, receiving from God. We could even today call it. A faith movement. People are happy to say that that's their primary factor. They want to be associated with faith. There are a faith movement, and faith often associated again with receiving, obtaining, even claiming. And with that, sometimes the thought of prosperity, faith that really causes you to get more and more from God, who is so willing and generous to give. That often are the associations of faith. But actually, Hebrews 11 is a much more enigmatic chapter than that. It's not as straightforward as that. It's not simply about asking and receiving, though most certainly that's part of it. But you'll find strange verses like this one, verse 35: Women receive back their dead by resurrection. Well, that's an amazing experience of faith. But then it goes on to say others. Were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And the whole 
of the epistle keeps on talking about something that's better that's still ahead for us. Something better than even getting someone raised from the dead. Better even than getting a wonderful short-term phenomenal miracle. As you read through Hebrews 11, you find, no, no, it's much more enigmatic than that. Other things happening, actually people's lives are being shaped. Huge decisions are being made. Some of them very, very costly indeed. But the root is faith. If you like, the message could be called the explosive power of faith. The explosive power of faith. This is what uh, this chapter is about, but it isn't simply about getting, getting and claiming and receiving. It's about making huge decisions rooted in things you presently know. Faith then. Moses' first act of faith, we just read, was to refuse. By faith, Moses refused. And that's an unusual word to put alongside, kind of receiving by faith, claiming by faith. Uh, no, Moses, by faith, refused. And no thank you. Now that doesn't quite fit the picture. What do you mean, refused? Well, I thought you were supposed to get by faith. Well, actually, he refused. By faith, he refused. It was a step of faith, of vision, of tremendous motivation. He said, no thank you, by faith. And so faith isn't simply accumulating. It's nice to think of faith as accumulating, but that's not what this chapter is all about. It's telling us this great hero refused. And when he did so, he laid the foundations for his life. And on the foundation of this man's life, because this is essentially a leadership conference, we just need to remember this, that on the foundations of this guy, laying a foundation of massive decision in his life, a whole community was built upon that foundation. That's how biblical leadership works. God calls someone, begins to train them, test them, and then gives them a sphere on the back of what they prove. Now we can get saved in a day. We can get baptized in the Spirit, speak in tongues and prophesy on day one. But it takes a bit longer to make a leader. And making a leader often has to do with secret decisions that can be very, very costly. And then on to that foundation of costly decisions, God can build a great, great work. So we read, Israel was baptized into Moses. That means, well, God did so much in Moses that he was safe to baptize a whole nation into him. He could lead a community because God had done such a profound work in his soul. And so, yes, biblical leadership has to do with the making. As Alan Redpath called his book about David, The Making of a Man of God, or Robert Clinton, The Making of a Leader. It takes time to make a leader. And we're acknowledging that reality as we come to seek God, as predominantly leaders here. God began to make a man here. So what was the story? Just briefly to remind you, I guess we don't need much reminding, that Moses was born into a very tragic and terrible situation. He was born into a slave community, refugee slaves away from their home base, cruelly treated for generations. And, uh, and even in not only a bad place, but in a bad day when uh, the screws were being turned even tighter and they're saying, now we're going to destroy the babies. So he's born into a terrible context, into a terrible time. But amazingly, he is born also into a believing family and into the providence of a God who's about to break out. 
And I'm so thrilled by something of the note that we've been hearing through the prophetic here tonight when God says, I'm about to do something new. Now wake up, get ready, because I am on the move. I believe it with all my heart. I believe there's been a cold wind that's killed off much. That's been certainly in this nation, but not only in this nation, but around the world. Much that's gone in the name of religion, but is little uh, more than morality. And God is giving us a rediscovery of his wonderful grace and the effects of the cross and the new birth. And so it's at a key time that God began to work here. I believe we have also come to the kingdom at a key time. Notice here then, Moses, into that context, as he is raised in Pharaoh's house and expected to come through that royal line into who knows what kind of prestige, position, power. One day, when he's mature, we're told when he reached maturity, this isn't the act of a young radical, somebody who hasn't thought things through. It's not an impulsive thing. The Bible says quite plainly, when he had reached maturity, he made a decision that was based on faith. It's important for us to underline the faith aspect of Moses' choice because we tend to associate Moses with law more than anything else. He is the man, you think of the law, you think of Moses. In fact, sometimes in the New Testament, it actually says you look to Moses, meaning you look to law. He's so identified with law. But actually, the root of his life is one of faith. And by faith, he refused the whole deal that was being offered to him. That's easily missed, but absolutely vital that we understand it was faith that made it happen. It's possible for us to live the whole Christian life without getting that vital foundation clear. We can think that Christianity, rather like we might think of Moses, was something, well, he just had to do it, didn't he? He was a religious guy. And it's expected of religious guys that you don't uh, take part in Egypt lifestyle. He was uh, uh, just being pushed by others. It was expected of him. Now, as you look at this passage, you'll find Moses didn't see this as a duty at all. Moses didn't see this as a sacrifice even to give up all that was there being offered to him in Egypt. Faith gave him a totally different perspective. He was very happy to make this choice to turn down everything that Egypt was offering him. And without that radical awareness at foundation, we will never genuinely build a counter-cultural church. We will never build a people that are in huge contrast to the people around us if we don't discover that the whole thing is rooted in faith for something better than the world can offer. And we need to see that, that faith is what releases. Faith is what sets us free. Faith is what puts joy back into the church and gives her her identity. Moses was essentially a man who'd seen something better than Egypt could offer. It's so important that we ourselves are full of joy and certainty about that and communicate that to those who come into our ranks, that we are not simply moral people. Otherwise, we will uh, build a church either on, well, Christians don't do that sort of thing. As a Christian now, you refrain from this, you refrain from that, you don't go there, you don't wear those kind of clothes, you don't use that kind of language, and it's simply a kind of prohibition list. 
We don't do those things, well, because you're in the church now, and people in the church don't do that sort of thing. And it's important for us to see that that's not what Moses made his decision based on. There was no external pressure. There was no one saying to Moses, hey, Moses, you shouldn't do that. No one pushed him. He was free. He was mature. He had terrific power and freedom. And he chose, I don't want to be part of this. He looked to what Egypt could offer. And we need to understand what Egypt could offer was phenomenal. It was probably the most advanced culture of its time. It was most certainly. It's still being studied centuries later because Egyptology is such a phenomenal study. They were so advanced in architecture and building and skills and wisdom. And Moses was trained in all that. He was trained in all the wisdom of Egypt. He had it at his fingertips. He had the privilege of exposure into that. He even had power and prestige. He could swish through the palace uh, full of power, authority. No one would have withstood him. He could have whatever he wanted. And he still chose to say, I don't want any of this. By faith, I refuse the whole deal. And if people haven't seen that we're being called to something better as we see as we go on, we will just see becoming a Christian means, that means I just have to stop doing things that I'd really like to do. And there can be still a longing for things and we need to see the root has to be cut by revelation of faith. Now of course, sadly, there's not only the danger of our producing a religion that's just rules, and regulations and prohibitions and saying, no, you don't see that sort of thing. Of course, now there's almost an alternative being suggested that you can have a message that says, yes, you can. You can have all that the world offers, if you like. You can be even more prosperous. You can have a better job. You can get more money. You can have a better marriage. We'll teach you about the whole of how to live the successful life. And if we're not careful, we can build big churches that are based on this sort of idea. You've got Jesus and you can be more successful at work. You can be more successful here. You can shine. But there's no sense in which there is by faith a refusal of all that. A turning of your back upon it, but rather somehow embracing it in and giving a more shiny Christianity that looks a bit more upbeat and pleasant. And you could have a bigger and a better whatever you want. And that's part of the whole deal. But Moses turned his back on a whole value system by faith because he saw something vastly, vastly different. He refused it, he left it and headed off into a totally different inheritance. What a few have seen, as uh, Paul said one time, the world is crucified to me and I to the world. It's not simply that I'm trying to behave in the world, but a fundamental and ruthless impact has come into my life that has cut me out from that whole value system and given me a hope that is based somewhere else. So Moses turned his back on prestige, power, influence, wealth, and freedom. And in the New Testament, they try to teach people the same sort of thing. Let me uh, remind you what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. You might like to turn to it. And verse 17, 1 Timothy 6, 17, it says this. Instruct the rich in this present world to tithe. No, actually it doesn't say that. Now, that's what we would tend to say. Now, instruct the rich. I've got some good rich guys in. Maybe they'll tithe. 
That would be good for us. And pray for some rich guys to join who will tithe. Well, no, Paul didn't say that to Timothy. He said, instruct the rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. What he says to them is, listen, there's something you need to understand that this is simply this present world. Those who are rich in this passing, present world. Don't just tithe out of it. Don't just live and say, well, I'm a really good Christian. I, I, I give a tenth and I'm pretty rich, so it's a really substantial tithe. That isn't what Paul is saying. No, Paul is saying this. By faith, we say no to this present age. By faith, we're going to do something that cuts us right out. Like Moses said, no, I don't want a part of this. I'm walking out into something completely new. And we find that Paul is saying something similar, that he's saying, instruct the, the rich not to be conceited. We might say, well, in what way is conceit reflected? What does it mean by not being conceited? What does it mean for us even in our present age? Well, if you look at James 4, I'll just read to you what James says. Now come you, in verse four thirteen, come now you who say, today or tomorrow... We will go to such and such a city and spend a, a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this and that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and on he goes. What he's saying is this. That the rich have all kinds of freedoms, choices. Well, I'll go to such and such. I will, well, where should we go on holiday? Where should we go for my training? Where shall I go to college? Where shall I do? And what he's saying is that riches make us independent. We can do what we like. Now, we won't, may not feel that's conceited, but if we look at the world broadly... If we look at the whole of the world population and realize how few people have those kind of liberties. How few people can say, well, we'll do this, we'll do that. And the danger is that we can stay as independent as we were before and just give a tithe. And Paul is saying, no, 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 that isn't the point. Say to the rich, don't be conceited. Don't come to a place of dependence on the uncertainty of riches. Don't put your confidence there because you're going to come unstuck there because that in the end is not a certain place at all. Instruct them instead, he says, to give it all away and become poor. No, he doesn't say that. It's interesting to see what he says in this uh, verse. Instruct them to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now that's far more significant than simply saying I will give a tithe or I'll give a proportion. Paul is saying now it's okay to be rich in the church, obviously in the beginning there were rich Christians. They weren't all told to give up their riches, but they were told to adopt a totally different stance to their view of life. They were to regard things from a different perspective like Moses did. By faith, 
Moses turned his back on a world system. By faith, he left it. By faith, he refused to be shaped by its values. And for us who have been joined to Christ, by faith, we step out from a value system so that giving, for instance, becomes being generous and ready to share. It affects us so profoundly that you can call your giving laying a good foundation for the future and storing up for a good foundation and that which is life indeed, that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So giving isn't just peripheral. Giving becomes laying a foundation. Are you laying a good foundation? Are you storing up for the future? Have you seen such a breakthrough in your comprehension of what life is that your giving is demonstrating, actually, I'm building a life somewhere else. I'm investing in another world. I'm giving my whole energies to this other world that lies before me. Moses turned his back on one in order to give himself wholeheartedly to another. And so there was a shift in his basic identity and what his ultimate hope was based on. It's so important for us to see Moses then was not just obeying rules, but he saw through the futility of the passing age that he was in. It didn't hold him. He didn't think, I can have power, prestige in this world. He said, no, no, I am heading off for another world altogether. He saw something that lay before him. And not just the passing pleasures of sin. The passing pleasures. We know that this world offers us pleasure. We know that sin in itself can be so pleasurable. We're not kidding ourselves that sin is not pleasurable. It is that he saw something more wonderful. Sin's pleasure can be very ensnaring. It can be very immediate. And I guess the great things that the scripture talks about, all that's in the world, the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away. And also it's lusts. But the one who does the will of God lasts forever. That's the thing that gripped Moses, that if I give myself to this, I may have prestige, I may have power, but it's all going to go. It's all going to come to nothing. There's no lasting worth in this. Why should I give myself to this? I'm going by faith. I've seen something that's utterly captivated me. So that I want to step right out of this. I, I, I don't want to uh, just try and keep some rules. I abandon it. I abandon myself to another lifestyle altogether. And that's going to make me have a far more rigorous view to anything that could spoil. Even the passing pleasures of sin that must have been there for him. The sort of things that can spoil and ruin a life. And we as leaders, beloved, if God's going to build on us, God's going to build on your life. I've been around long enough to see leaders who emerge for a season, maybe build a church, maybe even build a network of churches. And then something happens in their life and the terrible news gets around the network and we hear, well, have you heard what happened to him? Well, just for a moment, the passing pleasures of sin 
ensnared him. And when a leader gets ensnared, it's not just the man himself who loses it. Yeah, it's his family, it's his church, maybe it's a whole network of churches. And we suddenly think when God says they're baptized into Moses, he's investing lots of lives in the life that is leading. It's a huge responsibility to lead because it's not just your life, it's the life of many others who are looking to you, building on you. And Moses, by his refusal, begins to lay that foundation. He begins to say, come on, let's go out to another lifestyle altogether. Let's live for another inheritance. And they begin to get associated with him into that journey. I've heard stories of people, and I remember one of our own friends down in South Africa telling the story of actually a public uh, conference in, in, in Africa. And he said how he was in Europe away from home, anonymous, and uh, he flew into a certain city, and as he went to go to the hotel, he was in the, the shuttle bus going to the hotel, and he said a very beautiful woman came and sat next to him, but as she got into the shuttle bus, she dropped something, and a uh, case, and he helped her with her case, and he said she came and sat next to him, and he said she was beautiful and fragrant, and he was very conscious of her, and she was very grateful for his kindness. And they began to converse, and he said it was quite a flattering kind of experience that such a beautiful woman would be talking with him, and obviously enjoying his humor and being alongside him. And, uh, and then he said, uh, we went to the hotel, and when we arrived, he said, have you ever been to this city before? The, no, she'd never been. Well, he'd been once before. And uh, would she like to see some of the sights? Yes, she would love to see some of the sights. So he took her and showed her around a bit, just trying to be friendly. And uh, gradually, he's becoming aware of her femininity. And uh, at the end of the day, he thinks, actually, we'd better call this a day. And uh, he said his goodbye and uh, went to the hotel. They were in the same hotel. And he said he went into his room. And he'd just been in there a little while. And the door knocked, and he opened his uh, hotel room, and this beautiful woman walked straight in past him and said, uh, so when's breakfast? And he said in that moment, he was anonymous, he's miles away from home, and the possibility of amazing experience kind of flashed before him, and he just opened the door again and said, it's at such and such a time, I might see you down there, goodbye. But the passing pleasures of sin is a huge thing. And today in our world, people are compromising, messing up, making such wrong choices that can be devastating. And this dear brother stood in that meeting, he said, I'm so thrilled to be with you in this meeting and my wife's here with me, and I'm still in the ministry because I made a very good choice that night. Another guy came amongst us, and he said, rather more trivial in some ways, but so real. And he shared his testimony that he'd been in Eastern Europe. He'd been through some very, very hard ministry time. He was traveling, and a guy said, look, I can meet you in such and such an airport and pass on a package to you. And he said, oh, great, well, I'll, I'll, I'll meet you at the airport. And he was in transit traveling across Europe. And uh, he came to this uh, uh, airport, and he heard the news. Uh, this guy 
can't come uh, to meet you. He sort of can't get through. They won't let you in through to the transit area. So he said he was right there and he was, he was in the uh, bookshop and there are the glossy magazines and he said, I'd, I'd done the ministry time and I was weary and I was kind of exhausted and I'm looking around and he said, it's a time of danger for uh, us when we're kind of weary and uh, we've done our thing and again, anonymous, uh, way away from home. And he said he looked and he saw these magazines. He saw magazine, beautiful women on the magazine. And he's there alone. He's very conscious of this magazine. And, uh, and he stretched out his hand and he picked up a sports magazine and looked at the sports magazine. And he said, as I picked up the sports magazine, suddenly this guy appeared at his side. He said, they let me through the transit. I've got the package for you. And he said, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> when you're anonymous, when no one's watching, like when you're at your computer, when you're with your girlfriend that, well, we like one another a lot, and these days anything goes, doesn't it? So maybe we go too far, maybe. But, well, it's the way it is these days. Beloved, if you want to be a leader, if you want to be a Christian, if you want to live for another age, if you want to live for another world, not just, no, no, we have to obey the rules, we're not allowed to. We're not allowed to do that stuff. No, no, it's understanding this. God is creating a new heavens and a new earth. God's inviting us into a new kingdom. God's inviting us by faith to refuse. By faith to say, no, I'm not going to get trapped in that. That's part of the old. That's part of what's far passing away. That's part of a world that isn't meant to shape my thinking. Lust for finance, lust for position, prestige, possessions. That is not meant to shape me. I'm to be shaped by something else I've seen that's going to last forever and ever. That's not going to affect me. No, does that mean we all give away all our money then just become poor? No, it's far more delicate than that. It's a bit more poised than that. You're to stay rich, Paul says. Now, be rich, but the way you live, you don't get conceited. You say, thank you, God, you gave me resources. I refuse to be shaped by them, but I will share. I will be rich in generosity. I will, by the way I handle my finances, lay hold of eternal life. It's not just I give a little bit of it. Somehow the way you handle it is a demonstration, actually, your value system is in another world. And you say, thank you, God, oh, you've given me some more. Okay, I can handle riches because, yes, the way you handle it is demonstrating you are more committed to church planting around the world, helping us to move into great cities of the world, getting involved in all sorts of situations. Right, I just want to give this. Well, that's not a tenth, that's massive. Yeah, I know, but we're not just talking about a little rule we have to keep. I've seen something. I'm building forever. You say, well, I, I don't want to get into nasty sexual stuff. Why? Because we're not allowed to. No, by faith we have seen a better thing. The passing pleasures of sin are just messing me up. They're getting me messed in a way that stops me believing for things that God wants me to be and do. 
And so we step right out of that world by God's wonderful grace. All that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is passing away. And it's that awareness that we're not here for long. It's that awareness we're building for another time. As we heard earlier today, this tragic story of a couple of teenage sisters in a family of four children in one of our churches, suddenly in a car crash this last week, and and suddenly it's all over. You know, a couple of girls that were in one of our wonderful churches, praising, worshipping, at New Day, dancing and singing, but actually car crash and they're gone, and the family wrestling with the agony. What does that mean? And Mike Betts was uh, in touch and saying how he preached on Sunday and thought, Lord, why do I preach? Felt drawn to preach on Acts 7 where there a glorious church was emerging, wonderful new ministries breaking through. Stephen, clearly a man full of the Holy Spirit, faith, wisdom, signs, wonders, suddenly gone. And he said, as we, he was preaching on that, he said, all the familiar reference points had gone. That's what's happened to this dear family. All the familiar reference points. All that, all the expectation. All that you anticipate the future will hold. All that you expect in that kind of framework. All the reference points have gone. You suddenly wake up to the reality. It can happen to any of us. Suddenly you think, oh, it's all gone. Every, the way I evaluated, the way I thought, the way we see things, it, it just, it's all changed. Moses saw by faith that all the reference points have changed. I live for another value, I live for another age, I live for another destiny. I also had a, an email this last week from one of the ladies in her church, one of our churches, who's actually in the Middle East, whose husband is in serious danger in a Middle East situation where he's been imprisoned and effectively because he's now a believer his life is in huge danger. He just got freed a couple of days ago and and she's written to say this, he was moved with many stories he heard of the people in the prison. He had free range among almost 1,500 prisoners and apart from murderers who were kept apart, he could move among these, giving his testimony, preaching the gospel and even reading the Bible to some. He says he returned carrying these men in his heart and if it wasn't for the thoughts of his wife, he would have stayed there longer as he knew the Lord had taken him there and given him a unique opportunity to minister. An officer beat him in the face the first night and the next morning he went to him and apologised. That is, her her husband went to him and apologised. The officer was so struck that he actually befriended him, watched out for him after that. He apologised to the guy who hit him. And there, right in this dreadful scene, he's living to a totally different value system. His life in danger, emails telling us we're scared, maybe he'll get beheaded. All the stuff that has happened and recently and filled our news, we were right in it. Somebody in one of our churches, right in the midst of it. And they're saying, hey, 
we are seeing life from a completely different value system. We're seeing what really matters, what really counts, what really lasts forever. Moses, by faith, refused the world system with its prestige and skills and power and the passing pleasures of sin. Instead, what did he do instead? Well, instead, we're told, he chose to suffer ill treatment with the people of God. It was a call to, first of all, be with the people of God, to be in a new identification. It wasn't a call, a personal fulfillment call, it was a call to almost lose his independence, his identity, and to be identified with the slave community. And to be no longer a prince, no longer a, a mighty, uh, free-moving young prince. Now, no, no, no. Now he's just with the slave community, with the people who could be so much despised. Out of all the freedoms of individualism, into a community. This again is part of what it is for us in our day to become a Christian, to become not just a philosopher, free thinker, yeah, I think about Christ as well, but being identified with the despised community. And of course, in our day in which we live, that the church, again, is a despised community. It's a community out of step with the modern culture. And here Moses is teaching us the way that he became part of a people that were thought to be yeah, out of date, irrelevant, non-sophisticated. I found that one of the hardest things that happened to me when I became a Christian, to be identified with something that seemed so strange, so out of step with the culture I was used to. And that's happening, I know, around our colleges, that more and more pressure upon those who want to identify with Jesus, because, well, you're a Christian, you're part of that. And now we are so much regarded as outside the culture. We believe in a creator. We believe in a God who made the whole thing. We believe that Jesus is the only way. We're unique in that. We don't think, well, he's one of the ways. No, no, we hold ground. He is the way. We believe the Bible is inspired. We believe in heaven and hell. We believe the aborting of children is a shameful criminal act. We believe that sex is exclusively within marriage between a man and a woman. The things that we believe are completely out of step now with the culture in which we live. There was a time when you could have believed these things in our nation, in this nation, and have been largely in step with a culture that had become Christianized over generations. But now, as the nation has turned further and further away, to hold Christian views makes you completely outside. You're cross-cultural, you're outside of it. And it's so important for us, beloved, that as we are like that, we do it knowing what we're doing. By faith we embrace these values. By faith we say, yes, I'm very happy to be identified with this. Not because Christians are hostile, narrow, negative, not allowed to, but because we've seen something bigger and more wonderful and eternal. And it's so important for us ourselves and to communicate that. And as such, live as aliens and as strangers beyond the community, beyond the lifestyle that's pressing in on us. And just knowing, actually, we don't belong here. We're not part of this. 
We don't identify. Sometimes you can look as though you identify. It's just living the life. I remember I was once in Scandinavia. I was walking down the street talking to somebody. And uh, I just thought, as I did it, thought came to me. I guess I look like a native. I look like I belong here. It just occurred to me as I was walking, I don't speak the language. I don't have any of their money. I haven't even actually changed my watch. I haven't unpacked my case. I don't belong here at all. And though, as I walked down the street, people would have thought, well, he looks the same as anybody else. But no, no, I'm not even speaking their language. I'm not in their time frame. I've not got any of their cash. I've not emptied my case. I'm just here. I'm here briefly. I don't belong here. I'm not locked into the culture. I'm passing through. A sense in which that's the church in our generation. We're, we, we don't belong here. We belong somewhere else. But that's not the whole picture because not only do we not belong we refuse to get into that place where you say well just withdraw then just be in a monastery just withdraw just step out of society just go to some uh, uh, monastic context uh, withdrawn from real life uh, maybe one of those strange kind of denominations that clings to history and lives in a farm outside so well we're not going to be part of the culture we refuse to identify we have another uh, view and value of life we're not going to do that because God has given us a command to bring in this contra uh, uh, culture right into our generation. So it says in Acts 17 and verse 7, they all, as they commented on this church that had begun to come in, the Apostle Paul and uh, his team, as they planted church and brought in uh, their gospel, it says this of them, they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, even Jesus. And so, it isn't simply that we say, oh, well, we don't accept that, we step away. No, we don't accept that, but we step in. And we establish a church, and we establish a community, and we reach out. And Paul had to live with this challenge that they don't, they don't acknowledge the culture, they don't serve our king, they don't serve our Caesar. They say there's another king. Even Jesus. And they get the testimony, these men who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. One translation says, these men who have upset the world. I think that's part of the process, don't you? As our vision is to turn the world upside down, as part of the process, you're upsetting the world most of the time. Because there's a church that's now so out of step with the culture in which we are, that, yeah, by faith... We turn our back on what the world has offered. Not to hide away, not just to uh, not be found, to be secret and hidden away, but to confront the world with a new kingdom that's breaking in. A new community that will grow and grow and grow because the Lord Jesus said it's like a stone that will grow into a great mountain that fills the whole earth. This new kingdom, this eternal kingdom that is vastly, vastly different is not just withdrawing but imposing itself upon the society. And for us as we go church planting, as we go calling people into faith and life, we're saying, come on, come into a thoroughly different culture. 
And as people are baptized, they're saying goodbye to that old world, not just to their own sinful life. It's not just a personal uh, repentance factor. It's not just personally I'm turning over a leaf. It's I'm saying, I say goodbye to this age. I say goodbye to this world. God has uh, written off this world. Paul said, the cross has crucified me to the world and the world to me. I have no confidence in this generation, this age, this world. And so we say, down into death, up into not just my personal new birth, but up into the new creation. Of which it says Jesus is the beginning. Jesus was the one who was at the beginning of all creation, but Paul goes on to say in Colossians, then the new creation, he is the beginning of a new, wonderful creation. He is the, the next man, and we're made in the image and likeness of this one. We are bringing in a, a community of God that will live forever as this one fades away. But victories in our personal life turn on decisions that we make and sometimes we are being offered maybe finance or maybe we're being offered something very different to that and we say, no, no, I don't belong to that passing age. I belong to the new age that's breaking in. I belong to an age that's going to last forever looking for what lies before. Well, ill treatment, it says here. Call to ill treatment. Paul on understood that in his experience. He preached in Athens, preached amongst the philosophers, the Greek philosophers, and it says they began to jeer and to mock. Obviously it went further than mockery as we come into martyrdom. And as we read a book like Charlie Cleverley's book, you see that people have stood so firm when they were completely out of step with the prevailing culture of their day. They began on a pathway that we have followed in our generation. We're called to be out of step. God is saying to us, come alive. God is saying to us, I want to look into your mouth. I can smell bad breath there. I see decay. I want to get some of that out. And some of the things I've touched on here tonight, some of that's in our lives. Some of that is spoiling us. Some of that is disqualifying us to fulfill our destiny. God wants to get it out of our system. God wants us to say, that I ruthlessly deal the death blow with it. Not because, as a Christian, I'm not allowed to, but because I've seen something so marvelously better and it's going to last forever. And we just come on to this final phrase, faith's consideration. So we've seen faith's refusal. We've seen faith's choice. And lastly, I want to look at faith's Consideration. It says here, considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking for the reward. What he saw ahead genuinely excited him more. He was able to see through what was pressing in on him and say, no, no. There is much more that I want to give myself to. He believed God's promises. He believed what God had for them. God had said, no, there's a great future for your people. He'd had the privilege of parents who had taught him values, a wonderful answer God had for the world. God had spoken to Abraham. God had spoken to Isaac and Jacob. 
back in their roots, there was a wonderful promise. God has a promise for the world. God hasn't finished with the world. And somehow, parents must have communicated that to Moses so that he understood. No, no, there's some mystical, wonderful promise that God has made. God hasn't finished with this world. We can see sin and, and, and terrible failure on every side. But somehow God said something to Abraham my forefather, and I'm somehow attached to something that actually has the answer to world history. And to be in a slave community and to feel in your heart, somehow we between us carry the answer to world history. That somehow we have a promise that through us, this slave community, we are the light of the world. That world history is dependent on us. World history is going to bring us out from slavery into freedom. That God is saying, I'm going to blow upon you. Wake up, church of God. There's a wonderful call upon your life. That was a tragedy of Jonah, as we heard referred to in the prophecy in the meeting, that Jonah forgot who he was. God said to him, now go and tell the world. And he, said, he ran away, didn't want to do what God said, and he fell asleep. And when he fell asleep, he lost his identity, he lost his sense of purpose, he failed uh, his generation. And in the end, even the heathen are saying, wake up! Can't you call on your God? And, and, And Jonah starts to wake up and he says, actually the storm is all because of me. That somehow the people of God were the cause of the storm because God's determined to get the voice of his people heard again. And even the heathen are going through real agonies waiting for Jonah to rediscover his identity. I believe all around as people listen on the radios to those who purport to be Christian and feel the failure that's there, they kind of say, haven't you got something better to say? I I put this quote in uh, my book of uh, Matthew Paris, who writes regularly for the Times, was an MP, is quite a openly non-Christian guy. And he castigates Christians. He says this, you modify your morality from a fear of becoming isolated from changing public morals. He continues, it's time that convinced Christians stop trying to reconcile their spiritual beliefs with the modern age. And understood that if one thing comes clearly through every account we have of Jesus' teaching... It is that his followers are not urged to accommodate themselves to their age, but to the mind of God. Christianity is not supposed to be comfortable, or feel natural, inclusive, moderate, or sensible. Christianity is inching its way up a philosophical cul-de-sac. The church stands for revealed truth and divine inspiration, or it stands for nothing. And that's, that's a guy who doesn't believe the gospel. He says as much in the article. He said, I don't believe it. But if the church stands for anything, it stands for these things. What is it doing? Trying to say, no, we're all right, really. Well, we're open to this, but we don't mind if we marry a few gays and we'll just bless it. And we, you know, we're just, he says, inching up a philosophical cul-de-sac. And he can see that. What are you doing? It's like, it's like the people in Jonah's boat saying, wake up. Haven't you got a God to call on? And he says, actually, the storm is all because of me. And eventually he says, throw me over. I I identify. This is who I am. And then when he repents, the world gets scared. Because they say, wow, this is real. 
Beloved, when the church repents, when the church says, no, no, I shouldn't be playing with this stuff. When the church says, I shouldn't be fiddling around with sin and dirty stuff. We don't, we're not going to live forever. This world's going to pass away and I've got a higher calling than this. God's given me something much better to live for. What am I doing? Why do I compromise? Why am I in a position like the two friends I mentioned that were, I'm anonymous, no one can see me, I'm just here in front of the computer and I'm just playing around Well, I can't help myself and I get more and more drawn into it. And Jesus is saying, wake up! I want that out of your life. I've got a great call for you. I want you free and clean and come on, we're going to live forever. I'll open a door for you. I want you to shine. I want you to sound the trumpet. I want you to wake up this poor generation that's passing away and doesn't know what the gospel is. And God says, I'm going to wake up my church and let that voice be heard. That's the sort of word we've been hearing in the prophetic here tonight. And Moses, it says, he counted it greater riches to be identified. Yeah, with difficulty and people re- resisting and people giving us a hard time. He trusted God's love. He believed, no, no, God will see us through. He woke up to the fact, hey, we are a significant community. We carry world history amongst us. We two million people, 600,000 men, wives and children. We carry world history. And it's time for the church to wake up and say, hey, we carry world history. We have the answer. So he trusted in God. He trusted in his love. That God would see them through. He trusted in God's wisdom. As Paul says in Colossians, the foolishness of God is wiser than man. And although it looks foolish to associate yourself with the slave community, although it seems wiser we could stay a prince and maybe from being a prince in the palace you could pull a few strings, you could send finance, you could help people, maybe you could change the law a bit. Hey, come on, let's be reasonable. Maybe we could change a few things. No, the word was out, come on out, let's start on a journey because there's greater riches to come on into what God has for us. He trusted in God's foolish way. And it says in verse 27, he endured as seeing him who is unseen. It's because he had seen the unseen. Can I ask you, if you've seen the unseen, are you persuaded that Christ is there? Clearly, the king of the ages. He's bringing in an eternal kingdom. You know he's alive from the dead. You know he's the Lord of glory. You know these things we sing and say are true and real. Why don't we give ourselves wholeheartedly then? Why don't we say, yeah, I refuse. By faith, I refuse to be shaped by financial considerations. I'm not going to be shaped by it. I live in this world, but I will not be shaped by it. Rather, I'm going to focus on what lies ahead. Yeah, the sexual uncleanness of our generation, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, I'm not going to let it wreck me. I'm not going to let it pull me down, disqualify me. By faith, I'm going to press through. I'm going to live for God in this generation that lies before me that God's opening up. It says he was looking for the reward. He genuinely believed there's more ahead in going into what God has for me. I want to read to you Hebrews 11 verse 13 where it says, talking about all these people in Hebrews 11, all these died in faith without receiving the promises but having seen them, having welcomed them from a distance, 
having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. By faith, Moses refused. Because he'd seen something more. He was persuaded it makes sense to go into what Jesus is inviting us into. The reproach of Christ. Being identified with the crucified Messiah who now is alive and establishing his eternal kingdom and inviting us to be part of his purpose. So let's live consistent with what we've seen. Let's understand the answer lies not in my being independent, not using faith as just a receiving thing that keeps me intact and just adds things. Claiming, receiving, prospering, more fulfilled, enjoying success. Is that what just Christianity is? Or is it not something far more radical than that? By faith we refuse. By faith we embrace something altogether different. Suffering might lie before us in a culture that's turned its back on God. Suffering might be there. We've been hearing through the day. Yes, suffering might well lie ahead, but God's looking for courageous people. God's looking for people who are clear about the issues. Look for a kingdom that cannot be shaken. As we've heard, much is going to be shaken so that what cannot be shaken will remain. And turning our back on the passing pleasures of sin. Not simply because we're not allowed to do that, but because, hey, we're in fellowship with people who are laying down their lives, being imprisoned, maybe martyred. They're in the same spirit as us. They're living for another age. They're throwing away their lives. Should I get troubled and messed up in this current age? No, God wants us free. God wants us pressing in to what will last forever. Let's stand to pray.